For over 70 years, Oshner has been dedicated to cancer research and new cancer treatment development, bringing innovations to the fight against cancer, including more clinical trials than anywhere else in the region. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. One of the most common complaints I hear from my patients when I first meet them to discuss their cancer diagnosis and treatment plan is that there is a lack of reliable, available information about cancer. Evaluating what is or isn't a credible source of information on the internet is challenging, even for the most experienced of Googlers. We are seeking to fill that gap by providing the public with understandable, reliable information about cancer. Join me as we talk to healthcare experts at Oshner about what you need to know should you or a loved one receive a cancer diagnosis. Welcome to All In Against Cancer. Breast cancer is the most common cancer diagnosis in women in the United States and currently accounts for the second most cancer deaths in women behind lung cancer. More than 260,000 diagnoses of breast cancer are made each year in this country and advances in screening and therapies for this disease have led to continued declines in mortality. In this episode of the All In Against Cancer podcast, we talk with Oshner medical oncologist Dr. Melanie Sheen and breast surgical oncologist Dr. Amy Rivera to learn more about the diagnosis, staging, and subtypes of breast cancer, what treatment options are available to patients, and how to screen and reduce risk for developing this malignancy. So welcome, Dr. Melanie Sheen and Dr. Amy Rivera to the show. I really appreciate you both coming on. Thank Thanks you for so much us. for having us. All right, so let's start with uh, Dr. Sheen. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got to be here at Oshner in New Orleans? Yeah, so I'm a born and raised local New Orleanian. Um, I did my medical training at Tulane Med School and Internal Medicine Residency. And then I went to Tampa, Florida for my fellowship at Moffitt Cancer Center. I've basically been doing breast oncology since I graduated fellowship. I got interested in breast oncology almost by happenstance in medical school. I did a rotation at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York and got placed in the breast clinic and have never looked back since. Well, similar to you, I uh, was placed in a GI medical oncology clinic in in my training and and, my first love endured as well. So uh, that's primarily what I treat. So uh, Dr. Rivera, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be here at Oshner? Sure. I'm also fairly local from a small town in South Louisiana named Napoleonville. Um, I trained locally uh, at Oshner Medical Center after going to medical school at LSU in Shreveport. Um, and then I did a fellowship at the University of Arkansas in Little Rock in uh disease of the breast and returned here for my first job out of training and also never never thought twice about breast cancer surgery. I um, was close to the chairman in my medical school uh, of surgical oncology who did lots of breast surgery and that was really my first exposure to it Um, and it just was a perfect fit from the beginning. So I was uh, very in tuned with it even as a student. Great. So let's start off with a pretty simple, though important question, and that is, what is breast cancer? How do you define that when patients ask you, you know, what does this mean? Yes. So we would say that breast cancer is cancer of the breast. Um, Of the breast cells in particular, there are actually many different kinds of breast cancer. The majority of breast cancers come from within the milk ducts themselves. The second most common type of breast cancer comes from the lobular glands that produce milk. And then you have various types of cancers of the breast that don't fall into one of those two um, major categories, metaplastic, squamous cell. Um, but we really you know, determine breast cancer based on what we'd say the histology or what do these cells look like? Where did these cells come from? Um, and breast cancer is not just really one kind of cancer. When we talk about breast cancer, we're not even just talking about that histology or where those cells came from, but we're also talking about what makes up those cells, what kind of mutations has the have these cells um, developed over time, and looking at various characteristics um, that help us treat these cancers. So breast cancer 
at the end of the day, is not one disease, but is in fact a broad category of cancers that occur within the breast. Great. I think that's a good overview. And, you know, I think there's some confusion too, because there are certain diagnoses that also get lumped in with breast cancer, such as DCIS or uh, ductal carcinoma in situ. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you explain what that is in differentiation to what we would term invasive cancer? Yes, absolutely. DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ, so ductal being from the duct, carcinoma being cancer, but the in situ component means that it's inside, in situ, inside the duct itself. So if these cancer cells are confined within the duct themselves, it's almost like a precancerous condition. And I like to describe it to my patients as it's like when you go to the dermatologist and they do a skin exam and they say, hey, look, this this is going to become cancer. You've got this precancerous spot on your skin. Let's take it out. Let's remove it. Let's treat it. And the treatment for that is almost very similar to a, no- a normal skin cancer. And in the same way, this ductal carcinoma, we treat it almost the same way as an invasive cancer or a cancer that has gone outside of the duct into the breast itself. And so the DCIS is still lumped into that breast cancer category, but is actually more of a precancerous condition. Now, there are other diseases of the breast that aren't cancerous, that are truly um, diseases that increase your risk of breast cancer. So atypical ductal hyperplasia, lobular carcinoma in situ, these are diseases of the breast that we know increase the risk of breast cancer and can increase the risk greatly, but these things don't necessarily become cancer. Okay. Well explained. Let's move on to risk factors. So walk me through uh, what you typically explain to patients as risk factors, stuff we know that increases your chance of getting a diagnosis of breast cancer. Yeah. In the breast cancer world, we talk about both modifiable risk factors and non-modifiable risk factors. So modifiable risk factors, those are going to be things like your physical activity, your diet, your weight, your alcohol intake, your um, smoking habits, things like that, things that you have the ability to modify or change to decrease your risk of breast cancer. We know that if you exercise more, your risk of breast cancer decreases. We know if you drink less alcohol, your risk of breast cancer decreases. We know that if you maintain a healthy diet, one that is high in fruits and vegetables and low in saturated fats, not only can you decrease your risk of breast cancer, you can decrease your risk of dying of breast cancer. We know that if you smoke cigarettes, your risk of breast cancer increases. Um, And so those are going to be your modifiable risk factors. The non-modifiable risk factors are things that are inherent to your body and to your family history. So family history is a non-modifiable risk factor. That's not something you can change. You can't pick your family. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if someone in your family has breast cancer, particularly mom or sisters or daughter, so primary relatives, those are going to increase your risk factor more than If your mom's second cousin has breast cancer, that doesn't really change your risk of breast cancer very much. The further you go out on that family tree, the less likely it is to impact you. The other things that you can't really change in terms of your risk of breast cancer are the age of your first period, the age that you went through menopause, how many children you had, did you breastfeed? Those are things that play into your risk of breast cancer, but those aren't things that you can really change. And so when we look at the global risk of breast cancer, we now calculate a risk score that gives you an idea of what's your lifetime risk of breast cancer, what's your 10-year risk of breast cancer. At Auctioner, we actually run a high-risk breast clinic where we have patients who come from their mammograms where this risk score is calculated that have a risk of developing a lifetime risk of developing breast cancer that's greater than 20%. So greater than 20% lifetime risk of breast cancer. Your risk is 20% over your life, then you are a candidate for our high risk breast clinic where you'd see either medical oncology or surgical oncology to determine what are the best steps for monitoring, for reducing your risk moving forward. And 
taking the family history just a one step forward, um, what are a couple of the syndromes? So someone who was born with not only, yeah, I have a, a sister or a mother with breast cancer history, but you know, I was born with a known mutation to get breast cancer. I think the most common one people have heard of is BRCA or BRCA1 mm-hmm. and 2. Um, talk me about uh, a, a couple of those and what are the some, some more prominent ones that we know of? Yes. So um, first, putting it out there, of breast cancer diagnoses of people who have been diagnosed with breast cancer, one in nine people have a genetic cause to their breast cancer. That means eight out of nine people diagnosed with breast cancer have no genetic cause. And so that is a common misconception that we see in our patients. Um, So, you know, your risk of breast cancer, your risk of having a genetic mutation if you've been diagnosed with breast cancer is actually particularly low. So BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, these are breast cancer syndromes where you see a lot of breast cancer throughout the family. You'd see ovarian cancer throughout the family. We know pancreatic cancer is um, common in the BRCA mutations. We know male breast cancer, prostate cancer. These are things that affect both men and women. So another misconception is that BRCA mutations and breast cancer mutations can only affect the female members of the family. But there are cancers that are associated with these mutations that can affect men as well. Mm-hmm. We also know that um, there are a variety of other mutations that increase your risk of not just breast cancer, but also like stomach cancer and um, brain cancer, um, various lobular cancers, the breast cancers that come from lobular glands um, can be associated with gastric cancers. And so we have a variety of these mutations um, and they're all a bunch of acronyms, PALB2, CHECK2, CDH1. Um, and some of these are high penetrance mutations, which means that if you have one of these mutations, you're likely to get cancer. Some of them are what we call low penetrance mutations, which means if you have one of these mutations, you may get cancer, but your likelihood of getting cancer is actually lower so that if you have this mutation, you're not as likely to get cancer as someone who has one of the BRCA mutations. So if you have these mutations throughout the family, we set you up with genetic counseling. And then from there, we're setting you up with all the screening that you should get as well. You're seeing gynecologic oncology if it's something that is associated with ovarian cancer. You're seeing gastroenterology if it's something that's associated with a gastric cancer or a pancreatic cancer, and so on and so forth. Great. And that leads nicely into a little bit of a conversation about screening. So breast cancer, I think, is in in many ways the paradigm cancer that we have really well-established screening for. And I think pretty much everyone knows that the typical screening technique, the typical screening modality for breast cancer is something called a mammogram. Um, What the goal of screening and really any cancer is, and particularly in breast cancer, is trying to reduce the chance that a given patient is going to really die from that cancer. Um, And the primary way you're doing that is by making the diagnosis of that cancer in someone who is, we think, is bound to get it at some point at an earlier stage. And if you're diagnosing it at an earlier stage, you have a better chance of treating it and curing them of that cancer. So by waiting for a breast cancer to uh, show itself with various signs and symptoms, you may be detecting it at a later stage in which you might not have as effective treatments. Or if you're getting at an earlier stage before it causes symptoms, that's the idea behind screening. You could potentially eradicate that cancer before it ever causes you problems um, or if it ever gets to the point where it would be incurable. Um, So the average risk patient, so someone who doesn't have one of these genetic mutations, someone who has, you know, a low or normal family history of breast cancer, it is pretty much universally recommended to start breast cancer screening uh, with a mammogram at the age of 50 and to continue through 74. Uh, What to do outside of those age limits is a little bit controversial. Uh, Many organizations do recommend starting at the age of 40, uh, not 50. And some say, you know, the risk of overdiagnosis and the density of breast tissue earlier than uh, 50 and the low rates of cancer uh, uh, earlier than 50 do not make 
the benefits of screening worth it starting at 40. So that is something you should discuss with your primary care doctor if that's something that you would fall into that. And that also, you know, correlates with what you're talking about of a person's personal uh, risk for breast cancer. Um, after the age of 74, the reason we kind of stop at that number is it, it's very individualized at that point. Uh, whether you should continue getting breast cancer screening primarily or, you know, it, it should be dependent on how the rest of your health is. You know, if you're someone who has an otherwise exceptional health and you have a long life expectancy, we say greater than 10 years, then you probably are going to reap some benefits of continued screening for breast cancer. If you're someone with multiple other medical problems, you know, maybe you're on dialysis, maybe you have another cancer, something like that, which would be more life limiting than, you know, the benefits of breast cancer screening at that point probably are not there. Um, how often do we get mammograms? We usually recommend them every one to two years, though those guidelines are uh, a little bit varied. Most people get them annually. Uh, that's usually what we're recommending. Um, and uh, the question of whether uh, routine self-breast exams that you should be doing on your own is also a little bit controversial. Uh, some advocate for it. Some advocate against it. Again, I think that's something you should talk to your doctor about. And same goes for clinical breast exams where your doctor is doing a breast exam on you and someone who's never had cancer before. Again, I think it's pretty commonplace to have that done. Uh, whether the data fully supports that being done on an average risk patient is a little bit controversial. And the reason I'm bringing these things up is because, you know, why aren't we screening everyone? For example, why aren't you, why aren't all women at the age of 20 getting mammograms. And the reason is because there are risks associated with screening everyone. Number one is that the rates of breast cancer just aren't that high in certain populations um, at, at those younger ages. Uh, and, and if you start screening everyone, you're, you're risking a lot of uh, false positives where you see something, then you have to go do a biopsy. Uh, maybe that biopsy is inconclusive to another biopsy. So that's both cost, time, anxiety, pain. There are complications that can develop. Um, you know, potentially you find something that was precancerous and never was going to develop into something cancerous and uh, someone who shouldn't have been screened. So uh, you're, they're getting all these treatments. And so there are a lot of risks that can come from over-screening. Um, with that said, you know, I'm a big proponent of breast cancer screening. The point of this is not to dissuade people, but just to explain how the, the thought process into, into screening goes on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all all very good points. Um, the controversy between screening early um, or that 40 to 49, um, I remember back in, I'm uh, going to mess up the year, but like the early aughts, there was a huge New York Times article on the controversy because um, the national recommendations came out that breast cancer screening should start at 50. And mm -hmm. I think if you look at the national guidelines, the national guidelines still say 50, but American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology says 40. American um, College of um, Surgeons still says 40. The American Cancer Society still says 40. So mm -hmm. we tend to opt out of that um, U.S. Preventative Health Task Force guideline of starting at 50, even though that's, you know, what you're going to see if you look it up, we tend to opt for 40. And part of it, especially here in New Orleans, where we have a large African-American community, is we know that breast cancer tends to affect the African-American population disproportionately at a younger age. There's actually been some literature and some discussion about maybe we should move our cancer screening guidelines, mammogram guidelines in African-American populations to 35 instead of 40. The problem with, as you said, you know, why don't we screen everyone at 25? The younger you are, the denser your breast. If your breasts are very dense, you're, it's hard to see cancer in that breast. On a mammogram, it's kind of like an x-ray. Think of it like an x-ray where the dense breast tissue is white. Cancer is white. And so if you've got dense breast tissue, it's hard to see any cancer behind that or within that. And as you age, your breasts tend to become less dense, and it is easier to see the cancer within that less, breast, less dense breast tissue. So that's really where that, you know, 49 to 50, 40 to 50 controversy comes up. That's where the um, U.S. guidelines of 50 come from. But if there's any question about cancer in your family, you should definitely 
you know, start your mammograms at 40 or 10 years prior to your family's breast cancer diagnosis. Dr. Sheen, let's pick up with signs and symptoms. So a patient presents with breast cancer. What's a, what's a typical presentation that we're usually seeing? Yes. So going back to your screening, um, you know, the typical presentation that we're seeing nowadays is patients who come in with a mammogram, no symptoms whatsoever. They don't feel anything. They feel perfectly healthy. They had a mammogram that showed something abnormal. They got a biopsy. Typically, we do our biopsies with radiology. And they come to us with a new diagnosis of breast cancer, but they feel well. In fact, I often will tell my patients, breast cancer is a diagnosis of healthy women. These are people who most often don't have any signs or symptoms of their disease. Now, less often, but still happens, um, more often than we would like, someone feels something. You know, so if it's just a little nodule that sits under the skin, it's going to be easier to feel. If it's something that's deep within the breast, it's going to be harder to feel. Breast cancers that are more aggressive or um, someone has ignored may grow faster. And so occasionally we will have someone who had a normal mammogram six months ago and now feels a knot in their breast. And if someone feels a knot in their breast, very often because of all the campaign work around getting your mammograms annually, people are often attuned to that and say, oh, there's something that shouldn't be there. Let me call my primary care doctor. Let me call my gynecologist. Let me just call the cancer center at auctioner and someone can get me taken care of. And so if we feel something, if someone has a knot, they feel it, we feel it, they're taken into um, the mammogram, they're taken into ultrasound almost immediately. We try to be very quick about those complaints of knots, um, whether it's in the breast, under the arm that people are feeling very rarely do we have people who present with what we call de novo metastatic disease or they present with stage four breast cancer where the breast cancer has traveled outside of the breast. And in those situations, we're worried about back pain or headaches or shortness of breath or abdominal pain where the breast cancer has traveled to the liver, to the lungs, to the bone. But I would say most often when people have breast cancer, they're generally asymptomatic. They have no symptoms. They're coming to us with an abnormal mammogram. Okay, so next let's talk a little bit about uh, actually making the diagnosis of breast cancer. So let's talk about a localized breast cancer. How are we making the diagnosis? What imaging techniques are we using? Uh, and and, and how, do we, how do we actually proceed with that diagnosis, Dr. Rivera? Sure. So fortunately, screening mammography has really come a long way over the years. We're fortunate enough to be able to have uh, not only a digital mammography, but tomosynthesis mammography with 3D format now uh, for early detection and screening. And with the role of that, we ho- our hope is that we pick up on breast cancers that are actually too small to palpate. Um, as we know, early detection is key. Uh, with, with mammography, sometimes we need adjunct therapies such such as ultrasound to determine whether things are cystic or solid and sort through how suspicious a lesion may be in order to set a patient up for a potential biopsy. Um, Really, we diagnose breast cancer through needle biopsies uh, by and large the majority of the time, uh, whether that mass is picked up on a a screening mammogram or a patient comes in with a sign or a symptom with a palpable mass or um, something that triggered a workup with imaging. We do frequently... uh, Uh, then take that a step up potentially once we know a patient has a cancer with MRI to give us a better technique with more detailed imaging of the breast. And even some patients who qualify for high-risk screening get MRIs as a screening modality. How do you make the decision whether someone needs any full-body imaging, you know, something like a CAT scan or a PET scan, you know, MRI of the brain, something like that? Is that something routinely that's being done in their initial diagnosis, or how do you make that decision? 
A breast cancer diagnosis that's early stage, where it's localized just to the breast, typically does not require full body imaging. We would expect that the vast, vast majority of a breast cancer that does spread would travel to the axillary lymph nodes initially. And so the way we diagnose that, if we don't pick up any abnormal lymph nodes on screening, on our workup or our screening exam, uh, then we look for that during the operation with what's called a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And without any suspicious lymph nodes, uh, we typically can spare the patient of a full body workup. If there are advanced signs and symptoms of breast cancer where they do have several lymph nodes in the axilla uh, or they present with systemic signs that something is abnormal elsewhere in the body, whether it's lab work or uh, a symptom that, that a patient presents with, then we may have a suspicion or if a cancer has reportedly been there for a long time that the patient has potentially neglected or not been able to take care of, we may consider full body imaging with CAT scans of the chest, abdomen, pelvis, sometimes bone scans, and um, some patients do need PET scans. Great. So, Dr. Sheen, uh, I want to pose this question to you. So, earlier you had mentioned, you know, not all breast cancer is the same. There is so much heterogeneity uh, in breast cancer. And and I think um, that is very, very important. Um, and I want you to talk us through a little bit about how we subtype and classify different types of breast cancers. Absolutely. So, every time we see breast cancer, we always check it for three things. We check it for the estrogen receptors, we check it for progesterone receptors, and we check it for HER2 proteins. So estrogen and progesterone receptors, I like to think of them kind of like little satellite dishes that sit on the outside of the cell. And estrogen that's floating around the body is the signal for that satellite dish. And so if that estrogen links up with that satellite dish of either estrogen receptor or progesterone receptor, it kind of turns the cell on. The HER2 proteins are what we call transmembrane proteins. So these are proteins that are on the surface of the cell but go inside of the cell. And if you've got a lot of those, they link up together by twos, what we call dimerization. So they every two proteins will link up together, and they also turn the cell on. And the presence or absence of these receptors or these proteins gives us an indication of both the diagnosis and how to guides us in how to treat those cancers. So we talk about... Breast cancers that are estrogen responsive are the ones with the estrogen receptors or progesterone receptors on the surface. The HER2 positive cancers, those are the ones with the HER2 proteins. And so if your cancer has all three of these, we would call it triple positive or ERPR positive, HER2 positive. If it has none of these, we call it triple negative because there are three things we're looking at. And if none of them exist, it's the triple negative breast cancer. In terms of prognosis, the ones that are driven by estrogen have the best prognosis. The ones that have none of these receptors or and none of these proteins are the most aggressive. And the HER2 positive cancers are kind of in between. Prior to the advent of medications that targeted just those HER2 proteins, those were also considered really aggressive. But now we have medications that we know can target just those HER2 proteins on those cancer cells, which actually makes those cancers inherently more treatable. And so those are our big subtypes are going to be the ones that are driven by estrogen, the ones that have the HER2 proteins, and the ones that don't have any of them. Great. Let's move on to staging. So every cancer, people want to know, what's my stage? And um, Typically, obviously, we have stage one through four, but it's a little more nuanced than that. And you know, without going into the most minute of details, because these things change very often, uh, as we all know, and can get very complicated even for us. Uh, Dr. Rare, can you give us a brief intro into how we generally uh, approach staging patients with breast cancer? Sure. Staging is typically based on uh, three parts of what the cancer has uh, progressed to. The size of the tumor in the local region into the in the breast, uh, the regional lymph nodes. So are there any lymph nodes positive? And if so, how many? Uh, are they fixed to the surrounding structures uh, and that sort of thing? And then uh, whether or not any tumor cells have left that region and traveled to other parts of the body. And so we take a culmination of, of these parts and 
put those together with a stage. Staging used to be something you could kind of memorize for breast cancer, and it's gotten extremely complicated with the eighth edition of the staging for breast cancer, where we now include the grading, all of the receptors that Dr. Sheen was just going through with us, you know, as she discussed, uh, a tumor that has estrogen positivity may have a better prognosis and therefore is staged earlier, even if the tumor is the same size and extent as a separate triple negative tumor. So that staging really sets us up to understand what the patient's prognosis is and what sort of expectations we have moving forward based on the size of that tumor, the amount of lymphadenopathy that is positive for disease and whether or not there's been any spread distant. Great. Yeah, I gave up on uh, trying to memorize the staging system for breast cancer well before the eighth edition. Uh, (laughs) Yes. So that's not a really good excuse for me. But (laughs) so. Uh, that's a good segue into let's actually talk through how we're going to manage these patients. So let's let's start with um, the management of localized breast cancer. And before we get into that, you know, it, it, it bears mentioning that we're already going to have at this point, uh, for the most part, once the diagnosis is made from a biopsy, whether the patient has ER positive, estrogen receptor positive, HER2 positive, that all is going to be factored in. And then the vast majority of these patients are going to be discussed at a multidisciplinary tumor board conference with our pathologists, our radiologists, our radiation oncologists, our surgeons, our medical oncologists. We're all getting together to discuss what the optimal treatment option for these patients are. Having said all that, what's you know are the typical treatment options that a patient with a localized breast cancer typically has from your standpoint, Dr. Rivera? Sure. I'm often one of the first physicians that speaks with the patient once they've had their diagnosis and kind of introduce all of the treatment protocols to them. And if we're able to find a tumor at its earliest stage, then typically surgery is going to be step one of treatment for them. And in going through those options, we have to evaluate the size of the tumor in comparison and ratio to the size of the patient's breast as well as the location in the breast to determine where we need to take margins from the tumor, whether it's superficial and close to the skin or the nipple, or if it's deep near the chest wall, that may make a difference in what sort of surgery I recommend or where we make an incision for that surgery. Um, In generalized terms, the options basically are, can we preserve the breast and perform an operation called a lumpectomy where we just remove a portion of the breast and save the rest, which is referred to as breast conservation therapy. Typically, when we go that route and conserve the breast, we need to consider radiation therapy as adjuvant therapy afterwards in order to... um, for simplistic terms, kind of sterilize the rest of that breast tissue in order to minimize the risk of recurrence and therefore make it equal to that risk of recurrence if we were to do a mastectomy or remove the entire breast, which is the alternative option. And sometimes that is the only option for a patient if the tumor is large or located in a certain place or um, the patient has smaller breasts that are difficult to preserve. Perhaps a patient may present with a genetic mutation that gives them a predisposition for a future cancer and may consider that route uh, as preventative action or prophylaxis, as well as treatment for the current tumor that we're talking about. And so those are the two main options. Sometimes we even incorporate things like a breast reduction in a patient who's having a lumpectomy, and that may make them uh, a candidate for an easier course of radiation if we're able to reduce the size of the breast at the same time as the lumpectomy. So these are all things we think about. We try to choose uh, cosmetically appealing incisions that will give the patient the fewest reminders of kind of what they've been through with their breast cancer experience as possible, taking into account those margins and uh, what the adjuvant therapies are going going to be. And I'm just curious, you know, what kind of breakdown do you typically see of a patient who would be eligible for breast conserving therapy uh, or surgery, you know, what what patients, how, what percentage of them actually choose that lumpectomy, knowing that they have to do radiation afterwards versus saying, you know, I, I want a mastectomy. I'm, I'm curious as to if you have any kind of idea off the top of your head of that. Yes, uh, approximately 70% of the patients we see do choose lumpectomy if they're eligible candidates. Mm-hmm. So uh, the majority, um, yeah. I mean, it is a, a 
an easier to recover from surgery. It's a more minor surgery. Um, the majority of patients do have interest in preserving their breast. Sometimes that thought process changes when we find breast cancers in young patients um, who have lots of years of screening and, and potential anxiety around the diagnosis and things like that. So sometimes in our younger population, they may choose a little bit more often to go with the mastectomy route. Um, certainly, we have options of reconstructing the breast afterwards uh, that can make them feel you know more like themselves and uh, more normalized afterwards to have that breast look, but no actual glandular tissue or ductal tissue behind the skin of the breast with a nice reconstruction. Interesting. And, and earlier you mentioned, you know, part of the staging process is doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy. So talk to me about how you evaluate the lymph node status when you're seeing the patient, you know, particularly when you're in the operating room. Sure. We always would want to have a physical exam prior, and typically we do have some imaging of the lymph nodes. When those two things are both negative, if we don't feel any suspicious lymph nodes and there are none on imaging, the majority of the time there is no spread to the lymph node, but there certainly can be a possibility to find a small amount of disease in the lymph node. And so the way we evaluate that is once the patient's asleep in the operating room, and this is really whether they choose a lumpectomy or a mastectomy, we do it the same way. We would inject a tracer of a small dose of radioactivity called technetium typically, and that can travel through the small lymphatic channels under the skin and help to find the first couple of lymph nodes in that entire cluster of lymph nodes that a person has under their axilla or under their arm. Um, and if we can define those first few lymph nodes by picking up which ones held on to that tracer, we take those out, send them to the pathologist, and they do a full microscope exam on those lymph nodes. In um, most scenarios, we don't need to have that, that exam done right away while we're in the operating room because a lot of times we can preserve the remaining lymph nodes even if those first couple of lymph, lymph nodes are positive. Um, but for instance, in a situation where we had a suspicious lymph node from the outset um, or we're doing a mastectomy and don't expect the patient to have post-mastectomy radiation, we would potentially send that lymph node for a frozen section. So so the pathologist could give us an answer about whether or not they see any disease that is spread to that lymph node during the operation. And if so, we would go ahead and remove that entire cluster of lymph nodes from under the arm, referred to as an axillary dissection or an axillary lymphadenectomy. Great. Uh, Dr. Sheen, I want to move to you on the next portion of this. So we use a lot of medicines that are both oral and IV that go throughout the body also in the limited uh, cancer setting. So patients with localized breast cancer, whether or not they have lymph nodes involved, but you know are not stage four, uh, let's talk about our approach to how we utilize these medications. And, and as you'll get into, I'm sure it's very, very complicated and dependent on these subtypes. So, so walk me through a little bit of how you approach that with a patient. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. So um, just breaking it down, we going back to that staging, the estrogen-driven cancers, the HER2 cancers, and the triple-negative cancers. So if we divide it into those three categories, the estrogen-driven cancers, we have made leaps and bounds in terms of what we call de-escalation of therapy. And this is of particular interest to me. How how can we best treat patients without using a whole lot of chemotherapy? So we have what we are what we call genomic assays or tests that look specifically at the genetic makeup of the cancer itself, the genes that the cancer has acquired, not the patient's genes, but the genes of the cancer. And these assays tell us is the patient high risk of having breast cancer come back or at a lower risk of having breast cancer come back. And some of these, so that's the prognosis, and some of these are also predictive for how well the patient is, or how much the patient is likely to benefit from adding chemotherapy to an estrogen-blocking pill. And so the one that we tend to use a lot is Oncotype, which is a 21-gene assay, looks at 21 different genes that the cancer has, and this is pro both prognostic likely or unlikely to come back, and predictive, likely or unlikely to have benefit from adding chemotherapy. And there are many studies looking at 
how we use Oncotype. In fact, there's a new study that came out um, in December of 2020 called the RxSponder, which actually looked at patients who had lymph nodes involved, one to three lymph nodes involved, who had estrogen-driven breast cancer, HER2 negative, and said, okay, even if they have lymph nodes involved, which typically portends to a more aggressive cancer, do they still need chemotherapy? And what we determined from that study is patients who have gone through menopause, who have lymph nodes that are positive, who have a low oncotype score, don't actually have any benefit from adding chemotherapy. So these patients, they get a pill for somewhere from five years to seven and a half years of that blocks estrogen in their body. In this trial with the lymph nodes positive, this Rxponder trial, the patients who were premenopause, all of them, regardless of their oncotype store, still benefited from adding chemotherapy. In patients who have no lymph nodes involved, who are premenopausal, who haven't gone through menopause, and they have a low oncotype score, they don't need chemotherapy. They have a low oncotype score, which means that they're not going to benefit from adding chemotherapy. So with them, we use an estrogen blocker. In the premenopausal setting, that's tamoxifen. In the postmenopausal setting, we use a different t- category of medications called aromatase inhibitors, arimidex, letrozole, and aromacin. In the HER2 patients, there's a lot of nuance there as well. So it has to do with the size of the cancer and if there are lymph nodes involved. If it's a small cancer and no lymph nodes involved, Dr. Rivera will often operate first so that we can get a better idea of is it truly small, less than two centimeters, and are there truly no lymph nodes involved? In which case, again, de-escalation of therapy, less chemotherapy and less targeted therapy. So doing one chemotherapy and one targeted therapy. Again, this is getting into like the nitty gritty of all of this. If there's, <laughs> if they have a larger tumor or lymph nodes involved, we give them chemotherapy up front, what we call neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And the goal of neoadjuvant chemotherapy is to shrink that tumor down, shrink down those lymph nodes to give Dr. Rivera better margins. She doesn't have to go back and operate again if we see positive margins, things like that. So shrinking that tumor down. And that shrinking of tumor gives us also an idea of how well the cancer is responding to that therapy. So we get that idea before the patient goes for surgery. If the patient in HER2 positive has cancer after chemotherapy and surgery, then we can sometimes switch our therapy around. There's some new data that came out that one of our drugs that we use in the stage four setting may be better than the current drug that we have, but that that is hot off the press from the European Society of Medical Oncology. So that is kind of a TBD thought right now. And then the triple negatives. Our triple negatives, as I talked about earlier, are most aggressive cancers. And so a lot of these cancers, we want to treat them with chemotherapy before the surgery. So if they are two centimeters in size, so about an inch in size, regardless of the lymph nodes, we're going to try and offer these patients chemotherapy before surgery to try and shrink this down to make sure that this cancer is responding to chemotherapy. And again, hot off the press, clinical trial called Keynote 522 with a drug called Keytruda immunotherapy has actually been added to our standard chemotherapy regimen because it showed a higher percentage of patients with no cancer that was left at the time of surgery. And we know that the less cancer left at the time of surgery, the better the chance that this patient will never have to deal with the cancer again. So I know I sped walked through <laughs> all of that. It's but again, going back to our original question of what is breast cancer, it's a variety of different diseases. You can see it has to do with the size of the cancer, the number of lymph nodes involved, not just lymph nodes involved, but the number of lymph nodes involved and the number of receptors and what kind of response the patient has had to the treatment we've already been giving them. So really that treatment decision is taken patient by patient. When we talk about patient-directed therapy, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about treating everyone's individual cancer as their individual cancer and not as just globally breast cancer. Right. 
So I think that was very well explained and one of the reasons I did not go into breast cancer because it's uh, inordinately complex. Um, but but also the, you know, it, it, it kind of shows the importance of having these multidisciplinary discussions because these are nuances that are, you know, can sometimes be more complicated than, you know, they could have social reasons for not being able to, to – uh, do certain aspects of their care. There could be other medical issues that are ongoing, which precludes them from getting chemo up front. And, and these are why we get multiple players in the room to have these conversations about what fits the patient the best, let alone the complexity of having to just know and, and stay up to date on all this data. Oh, yeah. And I mean, we've started to include cardio-oncology, so cardiologists who have a special interest in our oncology drugs, because some of these drugs can be toxic to the heart. So talking about patients with comorbidities, that really plays in. What may be good for one person may be too toxic for someone else and cause them more problems down the road. So just kind of a, even a broad overview of cancer treatments is like an hour-long lecture, mm. taking into account everyone's different case. Absolutely. So Moving uh, on to the later stages of cancer. So this is something, because it's not localized anymore, is going to be more of a question for a medical oncologist, uh, Dr. Sheen. Uh, patients with stage 4 breast cancer, again, you know, we're going to have to break it down into different subtypes, but just briefly giving an overview of how we approach patients with these different subtypes of breast cancer. Stage 4, meaning the cancer has spread uh, as Dr. Rivera explained, outside of the region where it started, outside of the breast, outside of the lymph nodes that uh, are in the, the region of, uh, of that breast and, and really to other parts of the body. How do we approach treatments of those patients? So the first thing that I like to emphasize when we talk about stage four breast cancer is not everyone needs chemotherapy. You know, we have a lot of first and second and third steps that don't involve chemotherapy. And that is really the most important thing when we're talking to patients about their stage four cancer, because everyone comes in and thinks, I'm going to need so much chemotherapy, I'm going to have a lot of side effects. And just because we're not doing chemotherapy doesn't mean there won't be side effects. But the idea of treating breast cancer nowadays is to, especially stage four, is to improve the patient's quality of life. We all want to put quality of life first, making sure that we're not treating the cancer at the expense of harming the patient. So in the HER2 positive realm, a lot of our treatments are new and very new. Over really the last five years, we keep accumulating more and more new treatments. And one of the most exciting areas of treatment in this realm that I always get very excited about are antibody drug conjugates. So these are really cool. These are chemotherapy payloads attached to a medication that targets just the cancer cell. So think of it like, like a payload on a rocket ship. The trastuzumab is the medication that targets just the cancer cell, and it's carrying chemotherapy. And that trastuzumab gets to the cancer cell and deposits that chemotherapy essentially inside the cancer cell. So it's that chemotherapy is only going to those cancer cells. And we have two different antibody drug conjugates in the HER2 realm that we're using now that have amazing, amazing outcomes with, for the most part, fairly minimal side effects. Some of them can have pretty bad side effects in a minority of patients. And then the triple negative realm, we actually have a new antibody drug conjugate as well in that area that is also really exciting, seems to work very well in all of these in very heavily pretreated patients, so patients who have already gotten a lot of chemotherapy or gotten a lot of treatment. And so the more of these targeted medications we have, the more isolated we can treat just those cancer cells without globally treating other cancer, uh, other good cells. And then the hormone receptor positive realm, the first step in a metastatic case is often pill treatment. And from there, we'll often go to a two-pill treatment. And from there, a pill and a shot. And sometimes from there, potentially another pill. Mm -hmm. And so we're going a lot of different pill therapies before we get to the IV chemos. Right. So that evolution in all these treatments is, is happening rapidly, as you mentioned, and is, um, is, is very exciting because it, it does improve patients' outcomes, survival, but also their quality of life. So, so thank you for bringing our attention to that. Um, I will say that um, 
an important component of um, every step of the way is thinking about clinical trials. Um, so, you know, I want to talk a little bit here about clinical trial options. We offer a number of them at Oshner. Uh, we really emphasize our clinical trials program, both in the late phase setting, I mean phase three big studies where they're comparing a standard of care to a, a new potential standard of care, or even the early phase studies where they're phase one, phase two, and we're trying out a new therapy in multi, mu multiple different cancer types and one that hasn't been heavily tested in, in, in humans or in this population before. So, you know, I'll kind of pose this to you initially, Dr. Vera. Is there anything in the kind of early stage space, whether surgically or combination of surgical uh, technique and, and me medical therapy or radiation or anything that, you know, either we offer at Oshner that you've heard about that you're particularly excited about? We do. We have our trials kind of like uh, Dr. Sheen mentioned are often de-escalation trials. And over the years, that's been all of the trials in breast cancer surgery. How do we de-escalate or do the least amount possible and give the same outcome? And as is always common in the news, the general pu public hears about, are we over-treating breast cancer? And one of the the things that prompts that thought is that with screening mammography being uh, so valuable that we find a lot of early stage zero breast cancer, more DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ, before it becomes invasive disease than we ever did prior to uh, institution of screening mammography recommendations. And one of the trials we have open is called the COMET trial, where we can potentially spare patients who are found to have early DCIS, grade one or two DCIS, any surgery at all where they can consider potentially just taking one of those estrogen blocker pills that we were discussing uh, or just monitoring closely to look for progression with six-month screening mammographies to uh, or diagnostic mammographies to review that area and look for any progression. So we do have a group of patients who are very excited about that to be able to not have to do any surgery at all for of an early finding of DCIS. Um, in addition to that, we have a trial, the Alliance trial group um, that can spare a patient who initially presents with a positive lymph node and undergoes neoadjuvant chemotherapy and has a nice response in that lymph node where at the end of that chemotherapy, we no longer feel the positive lymph node and there's no sign that it's still uh, positive where we can offer them that sentinel lymph node biopsy that we were discussing before. And if that sentinel lymph node biopsy is clear, we do not have to proceed with removing the remaining lymph nodes and do that axillary dissection. But this trial even if that lymph node is still positive at the time of surgery, can randomize the patient during the operation to either go on to get that full axillary dissection or not receive that axillary dissection and expect to receive radiation afterwards. Because some of the earlier breast cancer studies have proven that we can have equal outcomes with a low nodal burden, even if we don't dissect that entire axilla out and remove that cluster of lymph nodes in patients who underwent breast conservation therapy, which would have included radiation. So it's basically a trial to see if we can spare patients who have a nice response to chemo from having that axillary dissection. And one of the biggest things there that we're always interested in is um, how can we prevent lymphedema? That's really the biggest downside of an axillary dissection, which is swelling of the arm after surgery, which has a fair risk. In a full axillary dissection, we would expect up to potentially a 25% risk or so of lymphedema, potentially more if a patient has to get radiation as well. And so we're always working to try to reduce that risk for patients because it can be somewhat life-changing if that side effect um, does occur. Absolutely. Uh, what about in the advanced stage setting, Dr. Sheen? Any uh, trials we're offering that you're excited about? Yeah. So um, we definitely have some interesting trials um, that are ongoing in terms of late stage and early stage. The one I will say that I'm most excited about, I know you asked about late stage, but there's an early stage trial, again, de-escalation. Yeah, I was talking. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. That I'm really excited about in the neoadjuvant setting, mm -hmm. so treatment before surgery, is in these HER2-positive patients who have larger tumors or lymph nodes positive where they're getting two medications that target just that HER2 cancer and one chemotherapy. Typically, we'll do two chemotherapies. And we give them 
the treatment before surgery, so neoadjuvant, and then they go for surgery. And if they have any residual disease, then we randomize them in terms of what the next step is going to be. So either um, adding in that other chemotherapy that they were getting or doing a different kind of chemotherapy. But again, one of my big area of interest, and I I think across uh, the board in our um, breast oncology group is de-escalation of therapy. How little treatment can we give that gives us the highest benefit? And that's one of the things in oncology in general, like a lot of our drugs, we're looking for a maximum tolerated dose, maximum effective treatment. But we're rarely looking for the minimum effective dose or the like minimal effective treatment. And I think that that is a great place that we are going in breast oncology in general. Great. Now for our next recurring segment, what can I do to decrease my risk of developing breast cancer? Uh, so I'll start with you, Dr. Sheen. Uh, what, what can I do, or maybe not as much as me as a male, but your average female patient, what can I do to decrease, decrease my risk of getting breast cancer? Yeah, so I would say know your family history is good. Know those modifiable risk factors that we talk about. Um, modify those risk factors so you're in that healthier range. Exercising frequently, limiting alcohol intake for women, no more than one drink per day. I typically recommend patients keep it somewhere around three drinks a week. Um, stop smoking if you're a smoker. That's very important across the board, eating a healthy diet, so a diet high in fruits and vegetables, low in saturated fats. Um, and But overall, just get out there and move more and kind of make your body a healthier environment, et cetera. Get the screening. If you are 40 and over, get your mammogram. Get it annually. If you are someone who has a strong family history, we can get you into our high-risk breast clinic, and we can talk to you about what additional options you have there. And for our next recurring segment, how do we treat breast cancer at Oshner? So, Dr. Rivera, uh, can you walk me through how we're treating a typical patient with breast cancer at Oshner? Sure. Most, as we discussed, breast cancer diagnoses begin with imaging. And once we make that diagnosis with a biopsy, um, the patient goes through our navigation system and gets set up with appointments with the initial physicians. Once we've met with the patient, if there's anything that we need to discuss about the initial treatment plan, it will be presented at our tumor board, where the entire group of physicians that treats breast cancer patients, as well as some of our ancillary, the research coordinators, um, the social workers, the genetics coordinator. You know, we've got lots of other folks on the team outside of just the, the treating physicians who can weigh in on how do we best come up with a plan for this patient. We also occasionally present patients at, at tumor board after surgery when we've gotten further results and we know some of that staging um, process in a little more depth for the patient so we can figure out what sort of therapies, now that we've removed all of the cancer, what do we need to do to keep it away, basically, and prevent recurrence. Um, in doing that, we have what our team kind of has agreed upon, uh, some loose rules and regulations on who does get that neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And again, that changes as you brought up with social situations or certain, you know, personal issues or health problems and things. But in general, we kind of know a rule of thumb of, you know, what do we usually do with the three centimeter triple negative tumor? Well, usually neoadjuvant chemotherapy is where we start out there or a node positive disease that's not estrogen positive. Um, certainly, we usually start out with neoadjuvant chemotherapy there. Um, but the majority of uh, node negative small tumors under two centimeters are going to start out on the surgery realm, and then we'll go from there with figuring out what adjuvant therapies they need. Uh, we come you know, full force at Oshner with what we can bring to the table. We really try to offer anything that's out there. We've changed from the traditional kind of wire localized lumpectomies where the patient has to come in to get a wire on the day of surgery, lots of coordination of appointments. They've got to walk around with this odd um, wire 
sticking out of their breast where we just insert a tiny little reflector, which can be done at a patient's convenience aside from the day of surgery. It's better for scheduling, less fuss for the patient. So that's been um, a big jump ahead there. We uh, certainly offer all the reconstructive options in terms of implant reconstruction, autologous reconstruction, and, um, you know, clinical trials come into play even in the surgical realm, which is not available in many aspects of cancer care. But in breast cancer, we actually do have some surgical clinical trials. So I think that's really unique to us. Um, In terms of, uh, you know, bringing genetics and things into play, um, we have gone from really strictly following the NCCN national guidelines on genetic testing to really expanding that to include the majority of patients who are diagnosed with a new breast cancer because there has been good data to reflect that a large group of patients who did not meet the criteria of those guidelines were actually found to have genetic mutations that could have meaningful results for their choices of surgery or potential screenings, um, test blood work, imaging that has uh, changed their recommendations in the future and certainly allows them to notify family members who may also need to get tested. So by and large, I would say the majority of new breast cancer diagnoses are now being offered genetic testing. Um, And that's really changed over the last few years. And it's become a very important part of really each patient's um, initial evaluation and workup. And now for our next recurring segment, what should I ask my oncologist at my first appointment? So I'll pose this to you, Dr. Sheen. Uh, what, what questions would you want a patient to ask you at their first appointment with you? Absolutely. When my patients have their first appointment with me, I break it down into three categories, their diagnosis, their staging, and their treatment. And so those are the questions that I like my patients to bring to me. What's my diagnosis? Talk to me through my diagnosis. I want my patients to have a good understanding of what their diagnosis actually is, their stage. Because as you mentioned before, everyone will say, oh, well, what stage are you? So that's important to know, important to understand. What's your risk of recurrence? What's your prognosis? That's all embedded in the staging. And then treatment. We go through treatment, surgical treatment, radiation treatment chemotherapy, no chemotherapy, pill therapy, no pill therapy. And we're weighing the risks and benefits. And so a patient coming in with an open mind and having questions about what are the side effects and risks of all of these treatments really gives us a helpful discussion and a good platform in which to move forward in terms of treatment and in terms of the patient living their life with the history of their breast cancer diagnosis. And now for our next recurring segment, fact or fiction. So in this piece, I'm going to pose a statement uh, or question to both of you guys, and I want you to tell me if that's fact or fiction. So first one's for you, Dr. Sheen. Uh, Only females can get breast cancer. Fiction. So 1% of breast cancers are diagnosed in men. And then also... Are transgender patients, male to female, and then female to male, can also get breast cancer. In fact, patients who are transitioning, we also want to take a closer look and make sure that they are getting their appropriate screens as well. Great. Dr. Rivera, this one's for you. I have no lumps in my breasts, so I don't need to be evaluated for breast cancer. Fiction. (laughs) The whole premise behind screening evaluations is an attempt to find a cancer before we could ever see or feel it or the patient develops any sort of sign or symptom that it's there when it's at its most curable state. And so certainly I have that conversation frequently. When we do find that breast cancer that I can't even feel as a person who is examining breasts continuously day to day in my entire practice and they come in and I can't feel it, I usually tell them this is exactly why you do these mammograms because we were able to find this before we would have ever felt it, whether it was you at home doing an exam or it was you coming into your doctor to have a checkup exam. And we will likely be able to cure you of this because we found it so early. Great. Uh, Next one for you, Dr. Sheen. I have stage four breast cancer. So any treatments are not worthwhile. 
that would be fiction, but depends on the patient. I always encourage my patients to have autonomy and agency over their breast cancer. Any decision that they make is their decision for their cancer. It's not the decision for the person sitting next to them or their cousin or anyone else. It is their cancer. So I always like to present options of what our treatments are. And in stage four, as I talked about before, we have lots of treatment options depending on the type of cancer, some that don't even involve chemotherapy, some that have bad side effects, some that have not so bad side effects. And so it's up to the patient to be able to make the decision whether that treatment is worthwhile, again, in stage four, putting quality of life as paramount. Great. Uh, And the last one is for you, Dr. Rivera. Uh, so the statement is, I have a genetic predisposition to breast cancer due to a mutation I was born with, such as BRCA1, BRCA1. So I should have a, a double mastectomy to try to prevent getting breast cancer. I was looking for a none of the above because it's hard to factor fiction, this one. So I would say largely, you know, a predisposition to breast cancer with a BRCA1 mutation gives a patient a higher likelihood to develop a breast cancer than not to develop a breast cancer in their lifetime. But that does not mean that every person who determines that they have a BRCA mutation if they perhaps are in their 20s, needs to have a bilateral mastectomy immediately. It, in fact, is recommended that we start screening earlier. So um, women who do find out that they have a mutation early on in life are recommended to start MRI screening at age 25 and then mammograms at 30 um, and to be established with a healthcare provider who can do breast exams routinely for them. And so uh, they certainly are able to continue their kind of childbearing years and even potentially breastfeed if that is what they would like to do prior to thinking about bilateral mastectomies. They are not obligated at any point in their lifetime, in fact, to have surgery, uh, but we do certainly recommend an enhanced screening protocol for them um, in a situation like that. It can, however, bring their risk down extremely low if they are ready to do the bilateral mastectomy procedure um, and prevent the vast majority of what could be up to 89% risk of breast cancer for them. So not a clear fact or fiction, but certainly a reasonable (laughs) option for someone to choose. Yes, definitely. Um, Well, look, uh, I just want to say thank you to both of you uh, for coming and chatting with me. I certainly learned a lot, and I'm glad you're a very smart people who know a lot about <laughs> breast cancer working on this day in and day out because um, as you can clearly tell it's it's complex and, and the data recommendations approaches treatments are all changing every day and um, uh, I'm really happy to you know be a part of the same team as you guys and and thank you for educating everyone and certainly educating me too thank you for so much us. for having us very nice of you to put this all together yeah So if you or someone in your family has been diagnosed with breast cancer, I hope this episode can give you some guidance on the diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment options available. The Oshner Breast Cancer Treatment Team uses a collaborative, multidisciplinary approach to treatment of patients across all stages of disease with the latest surgical, radiation, and medical therapies to help patients not only survive, but thrive. We tailor our treatments to our individual patients and utilize the most up-to-date medical evidence to guide our recommendations. To schedule an appointment with a cancer specialist at Oshner, go to my.oshner.org. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I'm Dr. Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. I'll see you next time on the All In Against Cancer podcast.